This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphne, what's going on? Well, we've had a busy week on the podcast. I feel like we're recording, 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 but yeah, that's we're good. we're uh, yeah, we're definitely uh, stocking up on episodes. So, uh, <laughs> but the guests have been have been tremendous, yeah. and we'll tease we'll tease some of them. I think because today uh, today's journal club has some hints as to who our next guest will be, and and so that's that's exciting. How are things with you? Uh, I am good. Uh... I don't know. Lots Every, of family at home. The, the puppy was sick. The puppy's better. Uh, my daughter had a birthday. It's been a it's been oh, a busy exciting. time, you know, with the holidays. Uh, holidays yeah. finishing. Holidays coming up. You uh-huh. know, it's it's busy time for everybody, right? Yeah. How about yeah. you? Um, it's busy time. I've been very much engulfed into the the FIDE World Chess Championships. Ah. <laughs> Uh, that uh for people yeah. who who uh, for listeners who don't know that you're like a chess fanatic i love chess and, i mean every uh, time I, every time you share your screen you have chess on so. <laughs> there's always chess board on <laughs> fine but uh yeah so today uh right. today was not the last game of the uh championship but uh the norwegian magnus carlsen won again and basically defeated his opponent and is now um staying the world champion for another couple of years. So it was, it was crazy. You know, it was crazy. Let me talk to you about this for a second. Yeah, let's hear it. It's not journal club, but you know, I know the names of the pieces. I know where they go on the board. Yeah. That's a good start. That's right. That's it's very (laughs) irritating when you get to a place and you see that the the pieces are not set properly on a board. It's sort of very irritating (laughs) for some reason, but it's, Mm. but I, I, I don't want to be a chess snob. What I'm, I wanted to share was that, but you are a chess (laughs) This chess championship was very interesting from a stamina standpoint that I think uh, I was reflecting on it from the NICU perspective. Mm-hmm. They, so so they, played, they played something like 10, 11 games. And the first six games were very competitive. And the game six lasted eight hours. Mm. And they played for eight hours. And it was not, it was so close. Uh, people thought it was going to be a draw until the very end and uh and carlson won that game and after that game uh the russian opponent uh nepo lost pretty much a lot of games making very silly mis- mistakes mm-hmm. and it was really a tale of of two halves where mm-hmm. he really uh fell apart after this game that was so demoralizing and i was thinking about that from the NICU perspective when you really work with a baby yeah. for days and then and then it doesn't work out and then you f- I felt what he was going mm-hmm. through and people were saying, oh, he's so good. How come? And I'm like, I know exactly what he's going what through. Where like? Yeah. When you're forced to come back to the to the table after these types of events and you're not given the room to breathe because they play mm-hmm. like, right back, like back. they played for eight hours and came back the next day for another one. 
it's it's impossible. So it was it was interesting to reflect on. Yeah, that. and the know. decision fatigue and it's mentally taxing. And so then I'll share. You you gave me a piece of of chess wisdom the other day, yeah. right? So I'm a I'm at a I'm a sit at the bedside kind of clinician. I'm a yeah. lean up against the wall and just watch the baby, watch the monitors, watch the ventilator, watch, watch, watch. They know. The nurses know. I'll pull up a chair and I'll stay all night. And it can be exhausting. But you mm-hmm. brought up a good point that in chess, in these big, you know, championships, they get up, they walk away, they reset, they breathe a little and they, they can, they can look at the problem with, with fresh eyes. So yeah, they have like a little rest area. So they get off stage and, and for most of the championship, it's like one guy in front of an empty chair, just like staring at a board. So it's, uh, yeah, but it's something also that I think is very valuable for us at the bedside, make a move and walk away. Let, let the position sit for a little bit and then think about your options. Because again, you can get so, um, wrapped up in what your thoughts are that you f- don't see some of the alternative mm-hmm. routes and uh, variations. And I think that's, you know, all right, enough chess for today. Fine. It's, I'm willing to, I'm willing to consider this, <laughs> this, uh, practice change. I'll think about it. What I hear you saying is that's that the I'm babies asking. are playing chess with us is what I hear you saying. You are playing chess with it. You're, you're, the babies are playing chess with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or with the pathologies. There's a, there's a discussion about are you playing the baby or are you playing the pathology? But anyway, so today's journal club, there's a lot of super cool articles. Uh, and I'm going to start with the least. No, these, this, this week, they're like, they're, they're kind of cool from a techie standpoint. Like there's yeah. one particularly that I want to go over, but I'm going to start off with the Cochrane review because, um, every time Cochrane publishes something on, mm-hmm. on, on neonates, we, we should, yeah, I think, like uh, review it. Uh, so this was published, um, uh, in the past two weeks, it's called nasal continuous positive airway pressure levels for the prevention of morbidity and mortality in preterm infants. First author is our good friend, Nick Bamet from, from CHOP. And, um, and so this is a very interesting, um, this is a very interesting Cochrane review because of what they were really trying to, um, to assess. They wanted to assess the effect of low CPAP versus moderate to high CPAP. And they really defined that as you were on low CPAP if you were on five centimeters of water or less and moderate to high CPAP if you were on, um, more than five centimeters of water. And they looked at that for two particular time points, which are initial respiratory support and following mechanical ventilation. So after extubation. Mm -hmm. And um, they wanted to look at these parameters in preterm infants. So they looked at uh, studies that included babies with uh, birth weight less than 2,500 grams or a gestational age at birth that was less than 37 weeks. They... um, they, they, they're very honest about the levels of CPAP. They say that this is a, a not, it, it feels arbitrary, but they said it is arbitrary and it sort of reflects how everybody else is thinking about these things. And I thought that was, that was reasonable. Um, their primary outcomes were very interesting. So they were looking at death or BPD at 36 weeks using the NIH uh, definition. They were looking at mortality at 28 days, hospital discharge, and at one year. They were looking at moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment at 18 to 26 months and at three to five years. They were looking at uh, treatment failure and need for mechanical ventilation. They also had a very long list of secondary outcomes. I'm not going to bore you with the list of secondary outcomes. And the reason why I'm not going to bore you is because you'll find out very quickly that this uh, 
that their 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 endeavor was not as fruitful as they wish it was. Uh, they had planned a lot of subgroup analysis, which I will uh, skip. And in the end, looking at studies between 2001 and 2016, they were able to include 11 trials. And unfortunately, um, they had to remove, they had to uh, exclude a lot of these trials. Um, because based on the outcomes that they wanted to report on, only four studies reported health out outcomes that uh, they had pre-selected as being relevant to nasal CPAP levels and to the overall health of preterm infants, while the remaining studies reported on short-term physiologic stuff, you know, like oxygen level, heart rate, and blood mm -hmm. pressure. Um, and the key result of the study is that uh, of the four studies that are reporting on the pre-selected health outcomes, they could only combine data from two studies. Uh, and I'll just tell you briefly about those studies, comparing nasal CPAP levels for initial respiratory support and two studies comparing level for post-extubation. And based on the data from these studies, there's, there's too much uncertainty uh, as to whether low or moderate to uh, high nasal CPAP will help improve outcomes. And so at the end of the day, uh, this is out there. Unfortunately, there's not much data. It felt like um, it felt like a bit of a frustrating endeavor when yeah. you're supposed to do a Cochrane review and you end up reviewing single studies. Right. It doesn't make too much sense, but it shines a light on the the lack of. I thought there was going to be more studies. That's I tend right. not to read the abstract. I tend to just like get dive, dive into right the in. paper. <laughs> and and shockingly, I was like, really, there's there's not much more. First of all, when they said eleven studies, I was like, that seems low. But then, and after that, when they had to exclude all these other studies, I was like, yeah. oh my god. And the studies are very different, right? So when we're talking about, you know, a meta-analysis and the, doing a review, is is or is it apples to oranges? Can can we make comparisons? And it 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 really, I think, goes to show how far academic medicine has swung, where we we're really not trying to replicate anything anymore. So how can we <laughs> even, you know, combine studies to 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 do, to do big reviews? And uh, a reminder for you know trainees who are confused and they feel like where where does the dogma come from well <laughs> there's, there, there's there still it a lot is. we don't know there's still a lot we don't know isn't that right so so that's out of the way um should we um do you want to do you want to go next yeah i wanted to review this um cerebral perfusion and neurologic examination characterized neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome a prospective uh cohort study this is from the archives nationwide yes. yeah from my yes. archive of of this um, lead author, um, uh, Kristen Benninger. And again, like you said, it's coming from Nationwide uh, Children's Hospital. And so they really, I wanted to talk about this paper because you know that I love functional MRI. <laughs> yep. I think that we have so much to learn from the psychology, psychiatry, literature, neuroimaging um, that will um, tell us more about disease processes in babies. So that's something they wanted to look at. They wanted to see um, was the brain blood flow, cerebral blood flow in, in babies with, uh, they're calling it NOWS, neonatal opioid with withdrawal syndrome, um, uh, different. So they did a prospective cohort study. They looked at subjects uh, who were newborns greater than or equal to 36 weeks gestation at birth and less than 14 days postnatal age. Um, they looked at a group of exposed infants, so they had in utero opioid exposure confirmed by toxicology testing, either in maternal urine, infant urine, meconium, or umbilical cord, 
and uh, all of the babies were receiving uh, more, at least morphine uh, treatment for their symptoms based on the Finnegan score. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like I said, all the babies were exposed to or were being treated with morphine um, as a first line. Some babies needed a secondary medication. Um, infants in the control cohort had no in utero exposure to opiates, illicit drugs, or other illicit drugs uh, or alcohol. Um, and then they did a really a, a, a matched cohort also. So they looked at gestational age at birth, postmenstrual age at MRI, and some of the exclusion criteria. Not surprisingly, babies with HIE, other central nervous system problems, and other major congenital anomalies. The measures they used, uh, they wanted to look at both cerebral blood flow. So they were using um, MRI and they wanted to compare um, basically the neonatal neurologic exam. So they were using the Hammersmith neonatal neurologic exam, uh, the HNNE. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with it, it really looks at kind of newborn state, uh, tone, reflexes, irritability, response to um, some yeah, sort of I, interaction. I, I was not familiar with that, yeah. and I had to look it up. Mm-hmm. Did you know about it before? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so I, I, I looked it up, and it kind of looks like the the gestational age assessment tool a little bit, right? So. You mean the Dubowitz? <laughs> because yeah, that's right. Well, the the Dubowitzes <laughs> are uh, are they develop the Hammersmith? So <laughs> oh, there why. you go. <laughs> that's oh, I why. didn't know that. <laughs> so it's a lot of the newborn state physiology uh, that they look at. So they had uh, 67 infants, 31 exposed, 36 control, and then um, they had really 30 and 31, so 30 exposed, 31 control, who were able to complete both evaluations. The groups were uh, comparable otherwise, no major differences in gestational age. The mean gestational age in both groups was 38 weeks. The age at MRI... Um, 10 days versus 9.3 days, no difference. Uh, the age at their HNNE was about nine days for both um, and no major differences in the groups in terms of sex. Um, interestingly, though, it's something, you know, I, I think we've we've done so many articles now about how um, being growth restricted is impacting development. So three of the babies um, in the exposed group were also growth restricted, mm-hmm. which is not uncommon, right? A lot of babies who um, are are have been exposed to things in utero are also growth restricted, um, and that may give us a hint about you know why the cerebral blood flow looks the way that it does. Um, Ninety three percent of the exposed group uh, were actually in the weaning phase at the time of MRI. I think that's important. So it says to me that the babies at least got to some sort of steady state um, and they were able to start coming off of, of their medications for most of them. So uh, the groups, when they just look at the newborn exam, so the HNNE total optimality score was lower in the exposed group compared with the control group. Um, Infants who had been exposed had lower domain total optimality scores for spontaneous movements, abnormal signs, and behavior and orientation. Um, So that those are some of the major categories in the um, assessment tool. 
Um, interestingly, the MRI quantitative scores, so brain size, really were not different. Um, and they actually did a good job. They, they um, not only did uh, total brain volumes, they looked at white matter, they looked at different um, brain uh, regions, um, and they were pretty similar. But what was different was that the cerebral blood flow was was very different. So the global whole brain cerebral blood flow was higher in the opiate exposed group. And then they looked at the regional cerebral uh, blood flow in infants uh, with opiate exposure. And it was higher almost everywhere, which makes sense. That's why the whole brain blood flow was different. But specifically leptomeningeal and perforating anterior cerebral arteries, leptomeningeal and perforating middle cerebral arteries, the posterior cerebral arteries, the anterior choroidal arteries, posterior communicating artery, the insula, the caudate nucleus, the lentiform nucleus, and the M1, M3, and M6 uh, territories. And so when you think about some of the downstream effects of opiate exposure and um, what that looks like, Clinically, um, it it's not surprising that they, they have changes in blood flow. I will say at the onset, uh, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I expected the opposite, right? I expected we'd see decreased uh, yeah. cerebral blood flow. And so they talk about this a little bit about how um, much like in hypoxia, um, ischemic encephalopathy, we, what we may be seeing is really reperfusion. Um, and so now we see increased cerebral brain, uh, blood flow, but potentially previously they, they had, um, altered cerebral blood flow. Um, so I thought that was really, really interesting when we talk about the, the pathophysiology. The other thing the group did is they um, tried to use modeling uh, using different combinations of cerebral blood flow and the physical exam, the HNNE, and the best performing model um, uh, kind of to, to pr- predict babies that had been exposed was the combination of um, the cerebral blood flow uh, MRI variables plus the exam, but it really only slightly outperformed the physical exam, um, alone. And so it just goes to show, um, how, um, how the babies, even just on physical exam, you know, have such, um, characteristic clinical findings. I, I think, um, that, that we're able to really, um, pick this up on clinical exam. Anyways, I got ahead of myself. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, you, you touched on a lot of stuff. I think to go back to a few things you were saying, the cerebral blood flow maps that they have in figure one, super cool. cool. And, and like, like you said, Sometimes it can be difficult when they talk about these uh, MRI findings to, as neonatologists, really to, to, like you have experience with it, but Mm -hmm. for me, I'm not as comfortable with MRIs. It's difficult sometimes Mm -hmm. to interpret there, but this is a picture with a worth a thousand words. Like you see it. My daughter would say that's different than that, right? Yeah, yeah, easily. (laughs) Um, so that's that's the first thing. And then uh, you touched on something that they mentioned um, in the discussion, which is this, uh, associ- not association, e- equating uh, uh, NOWS. First of all, uh-huh. that, I thought that was an interest. Well, let me start there. It was nows. interesting that <laughs> nows, right? Instead of NAS. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it might be a more appropriate term, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to To not call this abstinence. I mean, the baby did not... Uh, have abstinence from no, not abstain from anything. But anyway, 
I think equating this to HIE was very, very interesting mm -hmm. because we tend to dismiss NAS. I'm, mm. I'm, I mean, um, and maybe I'm generalizing a bit too much here, but we are, I mean, at least I'm dismissing it very often where I think, well, the baby is now out of this environment and there's a, a time component where the baby will eventually uh, get over this withdrawal symptoms and then things will be back to normal. And it's, it's first of all, I realize, as I say, it, obviously it's completely wrong, but this is wrong and should affect how we manage these babies. We would never say those things with a baby with HIE, right? We, we do encephalopathy screenings with, with uh, serial physical exams. They are all subjected to MRI uh, before discharge, and they all get neurology follow-up. Neurology and, and support, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, early developmental screening. So, yeah. And so it, it made me, uh, wonder whether maybe we have to reframe how we see these babies and, and like start establishing these frameworks to, um, get them proper follow-up, proper assessment of potential long-term, uh, issues down the road. Uh, and that was very interesting to me. Mm -hmm because I never thought of uh, nows, as we mm -hmm. say now, uh, in those terms. And for that, for that alone, I think the paper is extremely valuable. Yeah, it's interesting. For me, uh, this is something that's very in the forefront of my mind when I see these babies. And I, I think about what will school look like for them? You know, what, what will day-to-day -day life look for them? You know, they have such high levels of attention deficit, things like that. But... Do I do a great job with the anticipatory guidance for that? No, I don't. And I think that we could do a better job supporting families who may already have uh, resource limitations, right, or additional stressors um, that they're dealing with. Uh, do we do our best job to set them up for success and follow up? Are most of us even following them up in our follow-up clinics? We're, we're not as a whole. Um, and so mm -hmm. maybe that's something that we can do differently. And, and that goes back to bias and maybe confounding variables because mm -hmm. of the fact that these babies are the product of a gestation that is affected by substance abuse. Mm -hmm. For babies who are born uh, to mothers who have uh, issues with substance abuse, it's difficult. It's a very complicated social context. And and that alone has a lot of long-term consequences. And add on top of that potential uh, cerebral changes uh, at the cellular level, then, then yeah, it makes things even worse. And that's why I think rethinking how we follow these babies up, mm -hmm. no matter how they do in the NICU, mm -hmm. uh, no, mm -hmm. no matter how things go, is might be very interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think it just goes to, you know, when we, what is our role in transitioning babies to home and the, and the rest of their, their lives? You know, how can we set these families up for, for success? We have a real, uh, we have a real trauma informed mindset. <laughs> to yeah, this, we just, we just, today uh, because we, uh, we just, I guess we can talk about, we'll tease, we just recorded um, with, with Mary Coughlin, who, if you're not familiar with uh, her work, we hope you will tune in after the start of the year um, so that we can, we can engage you a little bit uh, yep. in that regards. So we digress. Where do you want to go? Digress. I want to go to um, pediatric research mm -hmm. and I want to talk about this paper called early arterial pressure monitoring mm -hmm. and term equivalent age MRI findings in very preterm mm -hmm. infants, since we're talking about MRI. Uh, first author is Roberta Butici, and uh, this is from a group out of the, uh, University Hospital of Geneva, which I visited not too long ago. Mm -hmm. So it also reminded me of my vacation. So that was fun. <laughs> That's nice. 
I was puzzled by this paper because of the objective, obviously. This pilot study investigated whether invasive uh, blood pre- arterial blood pressure monitoring uh, in a continuous fashion during the first postnatal days can predict term-equivalent MRI findings in infants born preterm and, the, and what was the lowest sort of uh, mean arterial pressure mm-hmm. uh, with the subsequent development of brain lesions. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting, obviously, because they're trying to do something that's challenging to connect uh, a very specific item, a physiologic mm-hmm. item early on in life to a term corrected MRI and making that connection point is, is puzzling. Um, I was wondering if in the background they would substantiate this uh, with any theories they obviously mentioned the potential of blood pressure disturbances causing IVH, that potentially being a, a modulator for long-term MRI issues. But otherwise, they don't have much else in the background. And they're just saying, well, there's also not much else in the literature, so it's not completely unreasonable to uh, try to bridge this gap. And this is why I sit at the bedside continuously, because I, I have this fear, this this sense that you know, a few low blood pressures will set, oh, set and, a and we'll talk. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. It's actually a okay. bit, um, I mean, the, the the data is retrospective. So mm-hmm. everything we're going to say has to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt because it's not perfect and that's fine. But for babies born uh, before 28, and six, 28 weeks and six days, uh, and they were all born at the Geneva University Hospital NICU, and they all had invasive blood pressure monitoring through an umbilical artery line. Um, they, um, so, so they... I was wondering if they were going to get into the, the thorny subject of normal blood pressures, right? That's right, which was but a they, hot topic just just yes. on Twitter. <laughs> and they avoided they avoided the topic very cleverly by yeah. just looking at what were the lowest, right? Mm-hmm. They just picked up on the lowest blood pressure measurements for these babies. Well, um, and, and studies like this may help us establish, you know, parameters, right? So And they did and they did use physiologic also markers of low mm-hmm. blood pressure which I think was very were very good. So interventions to treat low blood pressure were generally initiated upon observing uh, upon upon observing of a mean arterial blood pressure lower than that appropriate for the gestational age of the infant. So they're staying vague <laughs> on that point. But that's fine. Associated with other evidence of reduced organ perfusion, mm-hmm. reduced urine output, lethargy, abnormal skin color, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were using either volume expanders or inotropes, parentheses, dopamine as first line agent. Mm-hmm. I know, I know Kellyanna is going to be pissed that we talk, <laughs> but that's just, a, no, but I mean, at the end of the day, the one thing, even we talk about this on Twitter, when people were talking about what is a hypotension, everybody agrees that there must be some physiologic and end organ dysfunction mm-hmm. that you must document, right? I mean, it's, it's not just a number. Mm-hmm. Um, it is low urine output and, and mm-hmm. other stuff. So, so I think that was good. Um, so they, they were trying to get data on day of life one, day of life two, day of life three. I will spare you the detail because of day of life three, they were not always able to get good measurements. So we they ended up having day of life one and two only. Uh, the MRIs were done using a 1.5 Tesla and a 3.0 Tesla uh, MRIs, and they were reviewed by uh, two independent uh, radiologists. And they had this, uh, you may be familiar, you're definitely going to be familiar with this, mm-hmm. the, the Kidokoro uh, scale to assess the cerebral white matter, uh, cortical and deep gray matter, and cerebellum abnormality. So, th- so they use this scale, which I'm going to be honest, I was not super familiar with. 
um, and the primary endpoint was associated uh, was the association of of uh, the trends in in uh, arterial blood pressure and the variability with the occurrence of brain abnormality according to this Kidokoro mm -hmm. score uh, calculated as the sum of the four regional subscores. So the, obviously mm -hmm. the Kidokoro scores look at those different regions that I just mentioned, mm -hmm. um, and the brain abnormality on MRI was defined as a Kidokoro score of one or more. I feel like explaining. I wouldn't be able to explain the Kidokoro score. So let me just preface it by saying this, but I feel very, uh, I can cleverly get out of this by saying it's outside the scope of this review. <laughs> uh, so um, in terms of the results, they were their entire cohort uh, was composed of 99 infants and 78 of which had abnormal MRI, 21 of which had quote unquote normal MRI. Um, so the overall, overall for the so let me just talk quickly um, about the the, the cohort. Um, the gestational age for the cohort was uh, twenty six point three weeks. The birth weight was eight hundred and seventy grams, uh, and they have a lot of other a lot of, a lot of other factors uh, mentioned in the in the baseline characteristic. Um, overall, the median Kidokoro score was two. And 79% of the infants had an abnormal MRI, as we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Aside from birth weight and gestational age at birth, comorbidities significantly associated with the evidence of brain injury were fetal growth restriction, which, as you mentioned in the prior paper, we've sort of discussed on the, on the mm -hmm. podcast, late-onset sepsis, and bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So then they did this uh, lasso procedure where they basically uh, allowed the computer to connect the dots and saying, mm -hmm. what kind of... Um, measures of low blood pressure are associated with long-term abnormal MRI. So the lasso procedure selected 30 consecutive minutes on day of life one and 10 consecutive minutes on day of life two as the most relevant durations of lowest mean arterial blood pressure to be associated with brain MRI findings. And so the crude um, OR was 1.11 with a p-value of 0 0.03, and that's for the first day. And the uh, OR for the second day was 1.13 with a p-value of 0 0.03. And um, this significant association persisted after adjustment with covariates, including birth weight, gestational age, sex, and inotrope exposure. So very interesting that... In, in conclusion, basically, they found so, and they, they also, I'm going to, before I, I go into the conclusion, they found that they, they had like a threshold for the, the mean arterial blood pressure. I don't know how useful that is. I'm just going to mention it because obviously these are babies of varying gestational ages, but they're all taken on day of life one and two. So the ROC curve analysis showed optimal thresholds at 30.25 millimeters of mercury on day one and 33.25 millimeters of mercury on day two. Uh, and so these were the thresholds below which you started getting abnormal stuff on MRI at term equivalent. Their conclusion was that early continuous arterial blood pressure monitoring may predict brain, uh, brain MRI findings at term in very preterm infants. Just one last thing in the discussion, I was hoping that maybe they would really try mm. to postulate a mechanism. But the mechanism they mentioned in the introduction being talking about IAVH was actually quite ruled out because their rates of babies mm. with abnormal MRI, uh, so 78 babies, only uh, one of them had actual severe IVH mm -hmm. and 12 had grade one, grade two. So really cannot truly be explained right. by the overwhelming presence of IVH when that was really not the case. 
And then at the end of the day, they, they're making, uh, they're not committing to a potential pathway as to how this happens. Mm -hmm. They're making a general statement, in my opinion, about how hemodynamic fluctuation could affect, um, cerebral perfusion and 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 eventually cause white matter injury but there's not really a, an interesting uh, cellular pathway that they're explaining just in case you're wondering whether that's th that this is sort of buried somewhere in the discussion um i think that's fine if they if you mm. if you don't have a good mechanism to explain the the path the the association then, then there's no there's no need to uh, to postulate uh, uselessly <laughs> what did you think Daphne? well i think we know that cerebral blood flow, like in this previous article, you know, has some impact on uh, our long-term MRIs. And does our blood pressure modulate our cerebral blood flow? Yeah, we know to some extent yeah. that, it, that it does. So I don't think that's such a stretch. Um, I would have liked, like you said, to really see it broken down by gestational age, because mm -hmm. I I believe that matters. I don't know what the cutoff is, but I think there are different cutoffs for different gestational ages. And, um, but I, I think if there was a, there was a point, um, you know, that you start to see brain changes that, well, that would certainly change our, <laughs> how we looked at, at, at blood pressure for sure. So did it, did it freak you out that you have only, <laughs> that you only have on day of life one, you have about 30 minutes and then on day of life two, it's 10 minutes. So that's the, how, that's how are you going to manage now? That's the other question about, about blood pressure and choosing those first few days, right? And you're in that transitional circulation, transitional physiology, and you're much more at risk for IVH, but you, like you said, the IVH wasn't a huge problem in their cohort. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the other thing. like should our blood pressure parameters change by day of life, week of life? Probably, but we don't, we Probably. don't know. <laughs> we don't yeah. know. That, that stuff I think will come out as more and more hemodynamics point of care ultrasound stuff is yeah, being published. I think we'll anyway. be able to look at. Um, um, did, did yeah, you want, next. All right. I was going to do this effective prophylactic dextrose gel on the neonatal gut microbiome. Um, first author, uh, Sophie St. Clair, um, this is coming to us from New Zealand and is also in the, in the archives. So, well, I'll leave my opinion. I see I always get ahead of myself. <laughs> Anyways, their, uh, objective is to de determine. What's your opinion? No, I'm actually curious about it. <laughs> Here's my opinion. I am uh, I am a mother. I breastfed. I really believe in in breastfeeding uh, as a source of nutrition. <laughs> and uh -huh. when we bring in these babies for hypoglycemia, you wonder like what is the right thing? Like I know that some formula exposure for a baby who otherwise would get exclusively breast milk could potentially change the microbiome. Yes. And yeah. So is there an alternative that we could use that wouldn't change the microbiome? That's intriguing to me. That's my opinion. And, the, and when you read the title, did you think that the dextrose gel would impact the microbiome? I did not think it would because. because interesting. It, I thought it would for sure. You did? Yeah. I'm like, you're providing sugar. But it's, gluca I, it's, it's, it's dextrose. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm saying, shouldn't that provide? Like, I was thinking, should I provide a medium for mm. uh, some 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 bacteria that's crave? Yeah, I was just thinking. Anyway, so let's now let's <laughs> now we can now uh, we now we'll, we'll find out what happened. This uh, was part of a 
nested observational study um, within the hypoglycemia prevention in newborns with oral dextrose or the HPOD multicenter randomized trial to evaluate um, 40% dextrose gel compared to placebo um, in neonatal hypoglycemia. So these were babies who were at risk uh, for hypoglycemia, uh, infant and diabetic mother, babies who were preterm less than 37 weeks, babies who were small um, or large, so less than 2.5 kilos or greater than 4.5 kilos. Um, and they were randomized to receive either dextrose gel or this cellulose placebo gel massaged into the buccal mucosa as a, a prophylactic um, therapy to avoid neonatal hypoglycemia. Um, and so the study of that, the original study actually didn't find a difference um, in, in using the prophylactic um, gel, um, but the studies that looked at uh, glucose gel as treatment, um, you know, uh, did seem to, does seem to improve um, neonatal hypoglycemia. So many of us are using that in our, in our hospitals already. So then they wanted to look at the stool of these babies um, who received dextrose uh, gel versus the placebo gel to see, did it change the microbiome? So they collected stool at day of life one, at day of life seven plus or minus three days, and then again at four weeks plus or minus seven days. The primary outcome was to look at the uh, microbiota beta diversity and if you're not familiar with the terms, beta diversity is really looking at diversity between samples. Um, so between different uh, communities and alpha diversity is looking at the diversity um, within a sample. So an individual patient or, or community. Um, Thank you for doing it. I had to look it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you I had some experience in in, in stool sampling. <laughs> well, I have no doubt. <laughs> that never took off, but... <laughs> You have to be careful not to say those types of things in, in outside the, the neonatal That's context. Right. <laughs> anyway, so they really wanted to look at the beta diversity. So looking between, you know, the two groups at four weeks of age. They also wanted to look at the beta diversity at a week and then the microbial community stability. And again, the microbial alpha diversity at seven days and at one month. They also wanted to look at the kind of total microbial load at all time points um, to, to, to see what is the total bacterial load and the taxonomy differences. So all in all, they had 165 infants providing at least one stool sample, 45 in the dextrose gel, 49 in the placebo gel, and 72 in the control group. And the groups were well matched for baseline maternal and neonatal characteristics. Um, some babies uh, had multiple samples. Obviously, the goal is to have at least uh, those uh, three samples. Um, and so they used 434 samples for analysis. What they found is that there was actually no difference in the beta diversity between groups at four weeks before uh, or after uh, adjustments uh, for a variety of, of variables. Um, there was no difference even when excluding infants who received antibiotics or probiotics, um, which I thought was interesting. Also. That was interesting. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. There was no difference in total DNA concentration or relative abundance. Um, and then there was no major di difference between diversity within those groups at the day seven and the week four samples, um, which was interesting because I might have expected some diversity there just given other studies that have looked at diversity over, over age. 
Um, so to, to close that loop, there were no significant differences in beta diversity at any time point. Um, alpha diversity uh, or DNA con concentration or relative abundance of individual um, genera. But interestingly, they looked at some of the other um, neonatal characteristics. So beta diversity was significantly different between infants born vaginally and those born by C-section on day one and week four, which is something that has been shown, right? Yeah, in previous yeah. studies, it's one of the major criticisms for uh, doing section. too many cesarean sections, right? Um, but interestingly, no significant uh, differences in alpha diversity at day seven and week four, so within the same baby, um, or in DNA concentration. Um, they also found, not surprisingly, that beta diversity was significantly different between infants who received breast milk and those who received formula with or without breast milk on day one um, and week four, but not on day seven. Formula-fed infants exhibited greater alpha diversity than those who were solely breastfed, which again has been shown in, in research before. There's no significant differences in DNA concentration between mm -hmm. groups. The other thing they found was that beta diversity was significantly different between babies born at the different recruitment sites, which is not surprising, but is interesting um, yep. that obviously your, your flora would be different depending on where you are born. Live, yeah. So I thought it was an interesting study. Uh, I'm glad that it seems like giving them dextrose gel will not change their microbiome. So same here. <laughs> same here. I don't have much to add. I want to, I want to, I want to take the, uh, I, I would like to uh, be allowed to move on just because I want to get to like yeah, three yeah. more papers. Go ahead. And, uh, and I felt like you went, you went through this one pretty well. Oh, thank you. Uh, not that you don't go through them well before. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just uh, make sure I don't uh, misconstrue myself. Anyway, <laughs> the next one I want to talk about is this NAVA paper. Yeah. Uh, so this paper is published in pediatric pulmonology. It's called Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist in Ventilated Very Preterm Infants, a Crossover Study. Mm -hmm. First author is Arata Oda. This is from a group at in Finland. Um, so this uh, paper studied the incidence of hypoxemic episodes during NAVA mm -hmm. ventilation and during SIMV and pressure support ventilation. So SIMV is, for those who still need to be reminded, synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. Uh, and pressure with pressure support in preterm infants. Uh, and they wanted to see a little bit of the differences between the two modes, right? And obviously you this is very important. remind people what NAVA is? Yes, as I, yes, I was, I was going to do that. The, the, the two modes are in intubated patients and uh, NAVA is uh, basically neurally driven mode of ventilation where a catheter like a, like an OG tube with electrodes at the tip are, is being placed in the baby's esophagus, captures the electrical activity of the diaphragm. And when the baby sends a signal to take a breath, the electrical activity of the diaphragm is picked up by the ventilator and the breaths are delivered in a proportional fashion uh, to the baby. Um, so this was a single centered study uh, out of this level three unit in Torco University Hospital. I hope I pronounced this correctly. Sorry if I did not. Uh, it used a convenience sample of 19 infants, and this was uh, an observational study that took place between August 2016 and February 2018. All the infants with a gestational age of less than 30 weeks at birth and who needed invasive ventilation and had some desaturation events, uh, desaturation events were eligible for the study. The protocol involved two options. Uh, 
Um, and the options were to assess the differences between the modes of ventilation, depending on which mode they were on. Mm -hmm. So if you were on SIMV with pressure support, you were left on that for three hours. You had like a 20 minute washout period, and then you were switched to NAVA for another three hours. If you were already on NAVA, because that's the standard mode of their unit, mm -hmm. it would uh, watch you on three hours, transition you to SIMV, and then put you back on NAVA for three hours. Can I? Can we just say how useful these little diagrams are <laughs> for understanding I mean, the methods of a paper? <laughs> I could not emphasize that enough. And yeah, what it's Dr. Simple, Jensen, <laughs> Dr. Jensen said that, saying a paper will pop mm -hmm. if you have a good figure. Mm -hmm. He's a thousand percent right. Like I, I could mean, replicate this easily, right? So. <laughs> yep. Yep. And they're not sophisticated. I mean, this is not something you need a designer to do. That's I mean, right. this is like a bunch of boxes and it tells it. anyone can do it, <laughs> of course. But what I'm saying is that sometimes you think, oh, I don't know how to use the software. I don't know how to draw. It's like anybody could do this. So um, the settings, they don't really go into that, though. They mm -hmm. said that that was based on whatever the neonatologist on duty was deciding. Um, and right, the, presumably different for each baby, right? So Yeah, yeah. The, the also uh, something to mention that skin-to-skin -skin care was not done during these recordings, uh, just so that that could, uh, I know you were very happy about that, but for, for, for physiologic testing purposes, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and what's interesting is that even though the patients, that's the other thing that's important is that they, they measured a lot of different variables, but what's important to know is that they left the Nava catheter in those babies all the time. So they were able to capture electrical activity of the diaphragm, both when they were on SIMV and when they were on Nava. And obviously that's important because of the outcome. So the primary outcome of the study was the proportion of time with saturations within the clinical range, the clinical target range of 90 to 95%. Secondary outcomes, there were multiple, but included the time with uh, O2SAT above the target range, time with uh, O2SAT below the target range, number of desaturation, desaturation severity index, the number of manual FiO2 adjustments that were made and the time that uh, the, the near-infrared spectroscopy uh, was within the, the target range, above the target range and also below the target range. Um, they also looked, and that's very important, at the neural respiratory parameters EDI min, EDI peak, and respiratory rate. So before we go into the results, this, this is something that I was asking myself, what is this desaturation severity index? Mm -hmm. And so the desaturation severity index is calculated as the sum of the area under the curve below the threshold of 86% of each desaturation episode divided by the study time in minutes. Okay, so that's done. Results. So the infants uh, were born at a median age of 26 and weeks and four days, and the range went from 23 to 29 and three. Uh, the median birth weight was 610 grams with a range of 400 to 1160 grams. Uh, all infants except one received caffeine, and the infants were recorded at a median age of 20 days, uh, the range being one to 82 days. One infant was recorded twice. Uh, 14 infants were switched from NAVA to SIMV and back to NAVA, uh, and six infants were switched from SIMV to NAVA each mode. Um, let's go into the, the results. The proportion of time in the, um, the proportion of the time the saturation was within the target range did not differ between the ventilation modes, either when comparing NAVA versus SIMV plus pressure support. 38% in NAVA versus 29% in SIMV, p-value 0.29. Or SIMV versus NAVA periods, 30% versus 41% p-value 0.29. The median number of desaturation was 13 per hour 
and did not differ between the modes. That was kind of surprising, you know, mm-hmm. like 13 desaturation per hour makes you think. Yeah. However, no matter what, yeah. what the baby was on, it's a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and for people who, you know, we had the experience right at our last unit where we, our desk was in the unit right by the mm-hmm. sickest patients. Yeah. They desat a lot. Yeah. And sometimes I think we don't notice. However, the desaturation severity index was significantly lower during NAVA ventilation than SIMV pressure support when SIMV came before NAVA, uh, 152 versus 131 with a p-value of 0.03. In addition, fewer manual FiO2 adjustments by the nurses were performed during NAVA ventilation. The last thing I want to mention is the EDI peaks, Mm -hmm. meaning the uh, maximal activity of the diaphragm was significantly lower during NAVA ventilation than during SIMV. The minimal electrical activity of the diaphragm decreased significantly during NAVA ventilation after a period of SIMV uh, ventilation. And the PIP, the peak inspiratory pressure, was considerably lower during NAVA mm-hmm. ventilation compared to SIMV. And so these are the findings. Although NAVA ventilation did not increase the proportion of time with optimal saturation, it was associated with decreased diaphragmatic activity, lower <clears throat> PIPs, less severe hypoxemic events, and fewer manual oxygen adjustments in very preterm infants. Which the conclusions are underwhelming. It seems like it's like, oh, there's no difference. But I mean, if you That's get the same deal. outcome, it's a huge deal. <laughs> I thought the, the authors should have done a better job at uh, being yeah. boasting more about their findings because I thought... You could say, well, there was no difference except that like pressures are lower, diaphragmatic activity is lower. It's like, that's huge. Yeah, that's um, all the things, right? Uh, lower pressures prevents the development of, of BPD, right? <laughs> like we know yeah. that if we can keep babies on lower support, that, that they will have less <laughs> lung injury. So, uh, I mean, I thought this was a very positive paper. Yeah, this is a very cool paper, um, again, showing the benefits of NAVA. And it's a great paper to review this week because mm-hmm. we had the privilege to record yesterday with uh, Dr. Beck and Dr. Cinderby, who are the mm-hmm. co-inventors of the NAVA technology. And they came on the show to talk to us about NAVA. And, and this, was a, this was a fun interview. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they have, uh, they have uh, fun personalities. And, um, and it, was, it was cool to actually get their take on on really what are the merits of NAVA. And and when you think about it, not just as a mode of ventilation, but as a mode of, uh, as you were quoting them, Daphne, as personalized mode of ventilation, mm-hmm. it, it gives you some appreciation for, for what it does. Uh, any thoughts on this paper? No, I, I mean, you know that I like NAVA. I know that you like NAVA. We are not sponsored by NAVA. <laughs> we don't get paid to nope. say that. We just really like it. We find a lot of clinical applications for it. So this is what I see at bedside, right? Uh, There's so many babies, not all babies, but you transition them and you're able to wean their oxygen, even though they haven't weaned in weeks, you know? Um, So that's what I feel at bedside. It's nice. It's nice to see, you know, really paper after paper showing the, the benefits, especially those lower peak pressures, I think. Right. And, and it's not about what the paper for me highlighted is that it's not about the outcome on the monitor, meaning it's not about mm. the target sats only, meaning, yes, you want them to be in the range, but like at what cost, like That's at right. what cost are you going to get those results? So that was very interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you never look at the mon- the ventilator and you never look at the peak pressures that are, you know, pounding away at the, at this baby, mm-hmm. then yeah, you can keep them satting, you know, 95 yeah. all the time. <laughs> so, um, Following up on this paper, I wanted to talk briefly about this other paper in pediatric pulmonology, 
called mm. In Silico Numerical Simulation of Ventilator Settings During High-Frequency Ventilation in Preterm Infants. First author is Kai Forster. This is from a group out of Munich in Germany. Um, the paper is... Okay, I'm going to be honest. The paper is not super easy to read. <laughs> but what they're doing is some of the coolest thing mm -hmm. I have ever read. And for that alone, I think I would have probably dropped the paper if the technology was not this cool. Um, so I think... Just for that alone, I think it's it's worth it's worth reading. the The goal of this paper is to compare the effect of different ventilator settings during high frequency and conventional ventilation on oxygen delivery, lung mechanics, and uh, overall compliance of the neonatal airway of a preterm infant. So let me brief you as to what they did. Basically, they this is a study that involves one patient. So they took a baby that they had in the unit in Germany. And this is a baby that was born at 27 weeks and three days that was diagnosed with grade three BPD. And they put this baby through uh, a few tests. Number one, a, an MRI to look at the, the pulmonary tree. And they put the baby through lung function testing. Uh, the lung function testing was uh, done at 36 weeks, and uh, and it has all the references of the tools that they that they are uh, that, that they used. The baby's birth weight was 760 grams, um, and and again, that's why I was saying the paper is not just to read. We don't know how uh, old the baby was at the mm -hmm. time of the MRI. It's unclear whether the, I'm assuming the baby was intubated, mm -hmm. but it's not clear either. Uh, it says that the baby spent 32 uh, days on mechanical ventilation and 46 on non-invasive like CPAP, mm -hmm. but it's not clear what the mode was at the time. Again, it's not about the baby. It's about what they were able to do. Mm -hmm. So we'll gloss over that. And um, if, if I missed it and somebody in the audience picks it up, I'm happy to correct myself. So they did this pulmonary non-contrast enhanced MRI and um, they were able to create a 3D model of this baby's mm -hmm. lungs, right? And they created this 3D uh, computational model and uh, using the MRI uh, findings, mimicking the regional lung mechanics acquired from the pulmonary function tests. Um, and basically, once they had this model lung on the computer, they put the, the model through various settings on high frequency and conventional ventilator and looked at the O2 in and O2 out. And I'll explain that in a minute. So they had three different settings on high frequency. They had HF1, HF2, HF3. High frequency one was basically using a mean airway pressure of eight centimeters of water, a frequency of 10 hertz, and a tidal volume of two ml per kilo with an, uh, insp with an IE ratio of one to two. High frequency two, the map was decreased from, uh, the frequency was decreased from 10 to seven hertz, and the tidal volume was increased to 2.86 milliliters uh, per kilo. Um, high frequency three, they used a higher mean airway pressure going up to 12 and a tidal volume of 2.0 ml per kilo. Then they had settings for conventional ventilation where they used a respiratory rate of 60 breaths per minute, a tidal volume of 5 ml per kilo, PEEP of six, and an IE ratio of one to two. And these are obviously models, right? So the baby is no longer in the picture. So they got all the measurements from the baby. Yeah. The baby was returned to the unit. Mm -hmm. The baby is not being harmed in any of these uh, right. settings. It's, right. Because sometimes you could think, oh, are they doing this on the baby? No, mm -hmm. the, the baby underwent MRI pulmonary function testing, which by the way is would be great if we could Already start doing cool, right? <laughs> yeah, pulmonary function testing on our BPD babies at 36 weeks. So I think from an ethical standpoint, that was fine. They have all the different settings in table two of the paper. And basically they looked at 
simulated cycles of uh, eight simulated cycles for the high frequency and two simulated cycles for conventional ventilation. So what they did is that they created this, this pulmonary tree where there was oxygen in and oxygen out. Oxygen in, and you would, again, this is why the paper is not the best best because you would think oxygen out meaning whatever's returned yeah. to uh, during expiration but no oxygen in is what's entering the the airway oxygen out is what's measured at the distal mm -hmm. uh, bronchial tree so whatever's available for gas exchange and here's what they found so in in simulation one hf1 the amount of oxygen leaving the respiratory tree um, was 49 percent of the O2 provided to the distal airway, and again, at an FiO2 of 35%. Yeah. When they used uh, high-frequency 2, 58% of the oxygen provided was delivered to the distal airway. In the third model, where the, the mean airway pressure was a bit higher, they were able to get 58% of oxygen delivery to the distal airway. So um, It's still less than I thought. <laughs> it's very much less than we thought. Yeah. Um, when they looked at the conventional ventilation, the amount delivered represented 76% of the oxygen, uh, the O2 in. So much, much better at delivering that oxygen mm -hmm. to the distal airway. Um, they have a lot of cool pictures. Mm -hmm. And the, the one, more, one more finding I want to mention is, and it's the one they're highlighting in this discussion, they're saying that the most significant insight into lung mechanic here is that oxygen delivery during high frequency occurs more homogeneously than during conventional ventilation. Mm -hmm. So what they found was that the, the, because of the hetero, heterogeneous nature of BPD, they found that during conventional ventilation, the areas with good compliance would get over distended and the areas mm -hmm. with poor compliance would just not get ventilated, something they were able to much better overcome in high frequency. In conventional ventilation, I'm quoting, regional tissue aeration and inflation is mainly governed by regional tissue compliance. This means region of high compliance show tendency toward inflation slash overinflation, while regions with low compliance exhibit almost no inflation at all. And in contrast, high-frequency oscillation settings show a strong tendency toward a rectangular block picture indicating that all regions independent of compliance are ventilated uniformly. This would indicate an outcome in ventilator therapy that could be beneficial in the management of neonate with ventilation perfusion mismatch. You can look at the pictures. The MRI pictures of the inflation model on conventional ventilation is staggering. We'll share mm -hmm. that on Twitter. And... Again, they're talking about some of the limitations of their study and the fact that they don't know how well this can apply to very preterm infants. But I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like for BPD alone, this is already huge. Yeah. And and they're not, in my opinion, honing down on something that they mentioned, which is, I mean, actually they're putting it in the abstract, but they're saying that if we did this on every baby, we could create something they call this digital twin mm -hmm. where you could actually use the model and start test what would work for this patient and find the optimal mode of ventilation. And I think this is like uber cool. Super cool. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm going to stop rambling. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, it's just neat to, to use model, you know, they're using modeling and surgical planning, but this is like in real time lung mechanics. Yeah. It's really neat. It's really neat. Yeah. So this is really cool. Hopefully okay. we'll get it, you know, for every, for everybody soon. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> it takes an MRI and lung function testing but I mean, this could be something that's, that, that could change how we uh, treat babies. Mm -hmm.
The next article, um, Parental Perspective on Important Health Outcomes of Extremely Preterm Infants. Um, and so this is coming to us from Montreal. Um, the lead author is Magdalena Jaworski, um, and she is in um, Dr. Jan Bier's group, who um, uh, we are hopeful will be joining us on the podcast very shortly. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, so what the the team really wanted to do was find out um, really how parents of extremely preterm children report um, on their child's well-being long term. And so this is part of a larger study, the Parents' Voices Project, which is a cross-sectional survey of parents of this extremely preterm cohort. Um, all infants are born less than 29 weeks, um, are eligible for follow-up after discharge in their program um, for neurodevelopmental monitoring, and um, they engage in this long-term uh, longitudinal research. So the group was seen for follow-up at 18 months, 36 months, um, five years, and seven years. So they had um, 248 parents of 213 uh, children, um, so 83% of their eligible children participating, um, and they had 285 individual responses. They had both parents answering the question for 71 children, so that's where the, the difference in responses versus children come from. Um, and then for um, 128 children, moms only, and for 14 children, um, the paternal answers only. Um, and just for some demographic data among responding mothers and fathers, 63% and 82% respectively self-identified as Caucasian, 82 and 87% respectively reported having at least a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. So the group uh, mean gestational age of 26.6 weeks with a mean birth weight of 907 grams. And based on the 18-month assessment, they evaluated the children for neurodevelopmental impairment. So at that time, 55% met criteria for no neurodevelopmental impairment, 25% had mild to moderate NDI, and 20% severe NDI. Uh So then they asked the families to rate uh, their children's kind of health score. Um, And so interestingly, of all the children, the median score for health as reported by parents was 9 out of 10, uh, which is a very high score. And interestingly, when both parents responded for the same child, the agreement was very strong. Um, So they almost always agreed with each other's assessment of their child. And then they split the group by um, impairment. So for the group of no neurodevelopmental impairment, the score, uh, median score was nine. Um, For mild to moderate neurodevelopmental impairment, the score was eight. And even for the severe uh, NDI, the score was seven, which is still, you know, a reasonably high score, which is really, when we get to the discussion, really kind of their main take-home point. Uh Um, They also looked at the children whose parents rated their health as six or less, so less than the 10th percentile of the cohort. And that was 28 babies, uh, 28 children. And of those 28, four had no neurodevelopmental impairment, nine mild to moderate. And so not surprising, 15 had severe um, neurodevelopmental impairment. So that was the largest group, the most um, neurodevelopmental impairment. And so they had the lowest scores. But again, most parents, even with severe neurodevelopmental impairment, rated their kids as seven. 
And then they ask the parents their priorities for health improvement. So what would parents work on if they could? And the main themes identified uh, across the board uh, were development in 55%, respiratory health and fragility in 25%, nutrition, feeding, and growth problems in 14%. And 19% of parents reported there was nothing to improve. Then they asked parents specifically about development since that was the largest kind of group. Um, so if they described their child's development as suboptimal, what were they what were their concerns? Language and communication, 20%, behavior and emotional health, 18%, motor development and movements, 15%, and cognitive and learning skills, 14%. Um, development was mentioned equally by all parents. Growth and feeding were more concerning to parents of children in the severe NDI group as compared with the no NDI group with an odds ratio of 2.86, which is not surprising. Uh-huh. Respiratory illness and fragility were more frequently reported by parents in the mild to moderate category as compared to the severe category. And then they tried to look at um, these groups over time. So parents of 18-month-old children were less likely to mention development as an area for improvement. Um, In that age group, 18 to 36, they were much more likely to express concerns regarding respiratory health um, compared to the older uh, groups and growth and nutrition issues compared with parents of older children. Interestingly, there was no difference between mothers and fathers um, separately or by gestational age groups, even between the 22-weekers and the 28-weekers with respect to the frequency of themes invoked by parents. They looked at um, parental education. So parents who had not completed high school were less likely to report wishing to improve their child's development compared with parents who had at least a high school diploma. They were also more likely to respond that nothing needed to change. And um, I like that they provided us some uh, qualitative data. So in particular, uh, for development, things like I was worried about running, she acts like a baby, I'm worried about school, Um, her language, I wish she would express herself more clearly. In respiratory health and fragility, his lungs are still fragile, Um, his immune system, his pneumonias, he's sick all the time. And then in the growth and nutrition, I hope she'll learn how to eat. His reflux and frequent vomiting, he does not eat much. Um, so they really tried to evaluate what were the major concerns for parents um, and what did they think about their baby's health over time. Um, but really, I think this shows, and just like previous reports, that in general, parents, even of our kind of sickest, most fragile um post-discharge babies uh, still really rate their health as as pretty good. Um, And I think that's important for us to remember when we're counseling that um, we really, it's really the parent's experience and not our experience that we should be targeting. Thoughts? Yeah, Yeah, no, I agree with the the last statement you just made. And um, I thought that was very interesting. Figure three of the paper is quite interesting where they have basically bar graphs. And, mm-hmm. and in the first figure, basically, they look at the different areas of, of improvement that the parents have, have, uh, have identified. And in, and in graph A versus B, they're looking at this breakdown based on the severity of NDI. And, the, and in the second one, they're looking at it based on age. And what's interesting is that when you're looking at the chronological aspect of things from 18 months all the way to seven years, you can see that development progressively becomes a more and more prevalent issue. You can see that respiratory illness goes down, that growth and feeding goes down, and that the idea that nothing is wrong actually uh, 
goes away, meaning um, saying that there's nothing to improve actually uh, goes up mm-hmm. with uh, with time. So that, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the narrative uh, examples as well of, of the parents' uh, quotes. So that, that, was, that was cool. And that really mirrors, I mean, what you see in the routine outpatient pediatric clinic, right? The first few, you know, those early years are really around weight and growth. And then as they enter school age, um, you know, they're really more starting to worry about development and milestones in school. Um, So, you know, it's uh, parents of our medically complex babies still have a lot of the same needs as any other family, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So absolutely, I that was interesting. Um, I guess we're way over time anyway. But I wanted to mention this last paper, mm. um, just for fun. Uh, it's in JAMA Network Open. It's called "Association Between Early Amino Acid Intake and Full Scale IQ at Age Five Years Among Infants Born at Less Than Thirty Weeks Gestation." First author is Jean Christophe Rosé from the Epipage Two mm. Study Group and the Epiramax Study Group, uh, which is the basically. I, I tend to think of the Epipage as like the Epicure, the French equivalent of the Epicure group. Kind of, uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of, huh? um, But anyway, the reason I wanted to highlight this, even though we're over time, is because last time on Journal Club, we spoke about mm-hmm. early versus late TPN, mm-hmm. and we talked about early administration of amino acids. And so I thought this was interesting that this came uh, in our folder this week, um, talking about the effects of um, early amino acid intake in very preterm infant. So... The objective of the study was to assu- to evaluate the association between early amino acid intake and cognitive outcomes at five years. Um, <clears throat> they they identified uh, high amino acid intake as three point five to four point five grams per kilo per day at seven days after birth, um, and anything below that as uh, as I guess low. Mm-hmm. amino acid intake. I'm going to go through the the abstract. I, I went through the whole paper. There's a lot of stuff that to talk about, mm-hmm. but obviously we're, we're short on time. So they use the Epipage 2 uh, cohort, which is a na- nationwide prospective population-based cohort uh, that studies uh, 63 neonatal ICUs in France. And they created this propensity score matched analysis to compare infants born at less than 30 weeks who were receiving either high amino acid intake at seven days of birth compared to those who did not. Uh, They were recruited between April 1st and December 31st, 2011, and they were followed pretty (laughs) far Mm -hmm. out uh, until 2016, 2017. They performed full-scale IQs at age five. And uh, the main outcome was that the primary outcome of the uh, IQ score uh, greater than one standard deviation at age five years. Um, and then they did a complementary analysis looking at uh, all sorts of other stuff, including uh, data from cerebral MRI, a term equivalent. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time about that because the percentage, I mean, the percentage of kids from the study who did get MRI was quite, was quite low. It's still a high number, absolutely yeah, speaking, but it's, uh, it was a small percentage. So uh, 1,789 preterm infants uh, had data available to determine exposure to amino acid intake, and um, 938 infants, 938 infants were exposed, and 851 were not. So 938 had high amino acid intake, 851 did not. 717 infants from each group could be paired. The primary outcome was known in 396 out of 646 exposed infants, and out of uh, 379 out of 644 non-exposed infants who were alive at age five years. 
A full-scale IQ score greater than one standard deviation was observed more frequently in the exposed infants to high amino acids versus the non-exposed ones. And the, the, the percentages were 61.4 infants versus 54.4%. Um, and looking at some of that um, complementary analysis where they actually tried to do a matched cohort, so they said that in the matched cohort, a significant correlation was found between amino acid intake per one per one gram per kilo per day at day seven and full-scale IQ at five years. Um, and then when they looked at um, among all correlated nutritional intake, only amino acid intake level at days three and seven were correlated with uh, full-scale IQ. Uh, amino acid intake at seven days after birth was significantly correlated with carbohydrate intake and lipid intake, but neither carbohydrate intake nor lipid intake was correlated with IQ score. So this is something interesting uh, mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. um, lipids and dextrose not really... Right, it wasn't across right. the board. Um, and so yeah. their conclusion is that um, these, these findings are suggesting that um, early uh, high dose of amino acids um, is beneficial when you're looking at long-term outcomes. So in this cohort, high amino acid intake at day sevens after birth was associated with an increased likelihood of a full-scale IQ score greater than one standard deviation at age five. Um, and obviously, this is a this is a database study, so they're recommending more more uh, okay. specific studies to be done. Um, I know this was a bit fast, but I thought this needed to be uh, mentioned. Any any thoughts, Daphna? Yeah, I mean, I think they did a good job trying to match because um, infants in the exposed group, the ones who got more amino acids, were um, more likely to be female. We know in general in the NICU, the outcomes mm -hmm. are better in female infants. They were more likely to have mothers with an educational level higher than high school um, and more likely to have antenatal corticosteroid, which we know changes outcomes. So in general, they they were the had the better chance for better outcomes to begin with, but they did do all of that matching. But then it makes you wonder, you know, why didn't those kids get all the amino acids? Was it because they were sick? Was it because they had renal mm -hmm. injury, you know, which is, you know, one of the few reasons I restrict amino acids is that, you know, the babies have, I'm concerned for renal injury. So, and they, they did say they were uh, less likely to have acute kidney right. failure. Um, and assisted ventilation um, by in the first week of life, the babies who got the most amino acids. And so, you know, I, that exactly what they say. It's certainly an interesting trend. We know that early nutrition is important, um, but it's it's hard in a in a not randomized situation. It is, it is. you know, and, and and I'm not sure we'll ever randomize babies to that. no amino acids early on. Yeah, that's no, right. You're right about that. Anyway, <laughs> that's it for us today. Um, any parting words, Daphna? No, I think that's, that's all. Anybody else who's had a long week, <laughs> we, we... <laughs> congratulations. You've made it one more week. <laughs> I, I, um, I just wanted to highlight one of the reviewers that uh, we had on the, um, on the Apple podcast saying, love this podcast. The journal clubs are great and the interviews are always interesting. Keep up the great work. And this is from, um, XE 76 BLN. So, uh, thank you, and and we're working for more great content, uh, more uh, ways to consume information. So uh, look out for uh, what's coming up soon. Sounds good. Take care, Daphna. All bye bye. Right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. 
We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nikku, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.